1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A little over a year ago, the global economy was looking pretty healthy. Now, not so much. A slowdown is hitting the world's manufacturing sector and spreading. It's all connected to China's bad economic habits. And measures to stop it might make things worse. And there's a country that's building a wall, along much of its border, to keep immigrants out. There are fears that the foreigners bring with them a dangerous disease. We take a look at Denmark's pig fence. First up, though. Hostilities flared up between India and Pakistan this week as both countries launched tit-for-tat airstrikes. Yesterday, Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan warned of the possible consequences of further clashes between the two nuclear-armed powers. Is, In a televised speech, he asked, can we afford any miscalculation? afford any The conflict burst into life after a terrorist bombing two weeks ago that killed 40 Indian troops in the divided territory of Kashmir, the site of many unresolved arguments about territorial control and a focus of religious disputes.
2: Open warfare broke out in the fair land of Kashmir.
1: The first war between India and Pakistan began in 1947, just after the British-led partition that divided them. Pakistan was created as a separate, heavily Muslim state. It wanted control of the Muslim-majority area of Kashmir.
2: Indian armed forces arrived to combat the Muslim troops from Pakistan. In the closing months of 1947, the disturbance turned into a real war.
1: After more than a year of conflict, Kashmir was split between India and Pakistan, divided by what's called the Line of Control. But tensions have never really calmed. A major insurgency unfolded in the 1980s and 1990s with a bloody three-month conflict in 1999. A ceasefire, agreed in 2003, has looked weaker in recent years. Protests against the Indian government and high-profile attacks on Indian forces have become more common in Indian-controlled Kashmir. India blames Pakistan for supporting the insurgents. I'm joined by The Economist's defence editor, Shashank Joshi. Shashank, can you just lay out what's happened in the past few days?
3: Well, uh, following a terrorist attack, India decided, after many years of sitting back, uh, feeling frustrated, it couldn't do anything about these repeated terrorist attacks on, on Kashmir and elsewhere in India, it sent jets into Pakistani airspace for the first time since 1971. You know, a big deal. And bombed what it said was a huge jihadist camp belonging to Jeshu Muhammad, the group that conducted the attack a couple of weeks ago, in not just Pakistan, not just Kashmir's part, uh, Pakistan's part of Kashmir, but in Pakistan proper, in the state of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Pakistan, a day later, hit back, conducting airstrikes on what it said were open ground in India, just to show that it could. And an Indian plane in all of that was downed in the skirmishes that followed. And the Indian pilot is now in Pakistani hands. So we are in a period of huge tension. There's a palpable sense that things could escalate further. And shelling across the line of control, which is the line that divides the Indian bit of Kashmir from the Pakistani bit of Kashmir, has been ramping up over the last couple of days. So things are looking pretty tense.
1: Well, but it's an area that, that we know to be tense, has been tense for absolutely decades. Do Do you think the, the state of affairs now is more, more worrying?
3: I think it is. Uh, even when India and Pakistan fought a full-blown war in 1999 over a little chunk of Kashmir called Kargil, the Indian political leadership did not allow the Indian Air Force to cross the line of control, the, the 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 border in Kashmir, as I said, they were forbidden from doing so because it was seen as too much of an escalation. So for India to hit back uh, and to have done so deep inside Pakistan, we're looking at somewhere, don't forget, that is about a hundred kilometres or so from Islamabad, the capital city. And then for Pakistan to have conducted airstrikes on Indian soil um, for the first time again since 1971, that is a huge deal.
1: So in, in terms of what's likely to happen next, how does the sort of domestic political situation in each country uh, figure in? How, what what sort of pressures are these leaders under?
3: I think they're under quite different pressures. In Pakistan, Imran Khan, the prime minister and, and the army chief, which is a very powerful post, they, I think, feel fairly satisfied with the fact that they have struck back, they've evened things up. So I think Pakistan and the Pakistani leadership does not necessarily feel significant pressure to do anything else yet. I think things are different in India. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has an election coming up in a month's time. Uh, he has suffered some electoral losses in the last few months. He is not riding as high as he used to. And while his stock was soaring after the initial airstrike, the sense that he's lost a pilot, he's lost a plane, uh, things may not be over yet, there's international pressure on India, that may be a little bit more difficult for him. He may feel that both to appease to his Hindu nationalist base, but also just to... A, 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 make sure he maintains that perception of victory and toughness, he has to have the final punch. He has to land the final blow on Pakistan. So that could sway him and drive him into doing something else still.
1: Well, there's international pressure on Pakistan as well, right? It's It's been criticized for tolerating or, or even supporting jihadist groups for, for absolutely years, not just by India, but by the, the international community more widely. Do you see this as something of a reckoning for Pakistan?
3: Um Pakistan's had a lot of reckonings it's not easy to tell if this time's different uh now Britain America and France have moved a proposal of the United Nations to blacklist the leader of Jeshu Muhammad the group whose attack attacking Kashmir kicked all of this off but China has always vetoed such proposals. So China, which is a close ally of Pakistan, it's been investing in Pakistan um, in recent years. That's a huge factor in how much pressure Pakistan will feel or how much it will be insulated. The other big question, of course, is is America. America has been squeezing Pakistan as well. Donald Trump agrees that Pakistan has been sponsoring terrorists. But Pakistan is crucial in Afghan peace talks, in which which are which are in turn pivotal if trump wants to take his troops out of out of the country so it's not yet clear how far america will go in really forcing pakistan to choose between keeping jihadist groups on its soil or having a stable international environment
1: well with all of that in play then what what how do you see things playing out from here
3: I think it depends on a lot of things. If China uh, blocks the proposal to blacklist the leader at the UN, uh, if the Indian pilot in Pakistani custody uh, who has been treated well so far uh, is is mistreated or is paraded on TV again, um, if Modi feels the political environment in India is turning against him, all of that could force him into taking some kind of further action.
1: And and speaking of that international pressure I mean is is the sort of absence of a strong US uh, leadership on the global stage playing into this at all?
3: Right I mean I think it is in in past crises America has always played a central role in trying to calm things down. On this occasion, you know, we've had statements by Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. We've had uh, conversations with the the acting Defense Secretary, Pat Shanahan. But the President himself is distracted. He's in Vietnam, um, and he doesn't have much diplomatic expertise on this. You know, he he doesn't have a permanent ambassador in Pakistan, for example. So all of that, I think, makes it difficult for the U.S. to pay close attention to the crisis in the. way that it always would have done particularly given the shadow of nuclear weapons in the years past
1: i mean it would be good news if we don't have to talk about this um, very soon again for now thanks very much for your time to
3: thank you jason
0: world peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream but what if i told you it's not 2024, we'll see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: At the beginning of 2018, the world economy was booming. Economists were celebrating the emergence of a broad-based expansion. But fast forward to this year and the state of the economy is very different. There has been good news. Tensions between China and America have eased after the latest round of trade talks, and the S&P 500, a stock index, has been climbing strongly since Christmas. But the global economic outlook is worsening. This morning, China revealed that its manufacturing sector
4: had sunk to a three-year low. What's happened? I think when you look around and survey the the data, what you see is that a chill has descended on global manufacturing. Ryan Avent writes Free Exchange, our economics column, and is based in Washington. The most recent figures we've gotten on uh, industrial production from the U.S. and Europe both show that manufacturing is, is shrinking in those places the downturn has also stretched to east asia and it's it's showing up in trade figures also export numbers from korea and japan the most recent ones reported showed a, a huge decline in exports and a lot of that uh, is related to a big drop in exporting to china just last year it,
1: uh, things were looking pretty good the economy globally seemed to be booming What's, what changed
4: Well, that's right. If you go back to January of 2018, the IMF was hailing the synchronized global upsurge and, and said it was the best world economy that we'd seen since the rebound in 2010. But things went south pretty quickly and and sort of as the year went on got worse and worse. And, you know, you can point to a few different things happening. One is that central bankers around the world have been kind of worried about inflation and moving to tighten monetary policy. Probably more people have been focused on the trade war, which Donald Trump— uh, really began in earnest early last year, putting putting tariffs on washing machines and solar panels, and then steel, and then other things as the year went on. Uh, that's kind of dominated headlines. But I think actually, if you if you take a deeper look, what's really been interesting is is the weakness in in China's economy, not really related to the trade war, but which is is having knock on effects uh, right through the global economy.
1: And so in that sense, the, the sort of troubling trends then in global manufacturing point to worries about the global economy
4: more broadly? So manufacturing ends up being a pretty important sector in terms of of shaping the business cycle people, uh, when they're feeling optimistic, they make big capital investments, build new factories and plants and such. You know, consumers, when they're feeling flush with cash, make big purchases of cars and things like that. And then when they don't feel all that optimistic, they stop and manufacturing betoken darker times ahead. I don't think it necessarily has to be the case that a manufacturing downturn turns into a broader global recession. Uh, But I think the thing that's really worrying is that you know, most of the steps governments would take to try to prevent that from happening are not going to be as powerful as they would in the past. So the interest rates are very low, so they don't have room to cut them a lot more. Most governments are not particularly keen at the moment on on passing a lot of new uh, spending, new stimulus. But I think the worry is that, yes, a downturn in manufacturing could kind of drift and in, into a broader a broader slump. So is
1: this just a case of China's economic malaise just kind of spreading through international supply chains?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. That's sort of the weakness at the heart of of the matter. What China is going through right now is an effort to try to wean itself off growth that is heavily dependent on debt. Uh, You know, for the last decade or so, borrowing there has just been extraordinarily high, not necessarily by the government, but by a lot of uh, a lot of its firms, a lot of its big state owned firms. The Chinese government is worried about that. It doesn't want to continue to rely on debt in that way. But every time it tries to tighten up lending, impose more f- fiscal discipline. The Chinese economy suddenly gets really weak and, and shaky, and that's something that the Chinese Communist Party just can't allow to happen. And so we keep going through these cycles of weakness uh, that start in China where you know, they try to fix the problem. There's a slowdown there that starts to rattle the world economy, uh, and then China's government kind of panics a bit and turns the stimulus taps back on and, and, and saves the day temporarily.
1: But surely a reliance on that kind of mechanism or kind of everyone waiting for that cycle to play out over and over again is kind of a long-run problem for the world now.
4: It certainly could be a long-run problem for the world economy. I don't think it necessarily has to be. I think what's really worrying is that The times when China is kind of pumping stimulus through the system, it is not also simultaneously undertaking all the reforms that it needs to to undertake so that it's not kind of fundamentally weak over the long run. And, And really what that would mean is taking steps to improve the purchasing power of its consumers, you know, whereas the U.S. economy is heavily dependent on consumers. The Chinese economy is massively dependent on investment, and there's just only so much investment that you need. After you've built this massive high-speed rail network, for instance, you just don't need to go back and build another one. And so it's, the problem is that the stimulus is not helping the economy through a weak spot, but it's it's become kind of a permanent crutch. Is it the case then that the measures China might take could exacerbate the problem? The measures that China's government is likely to take are are things that are probably going to make the long-run problem worse. I mean, you could imagine a form of stimulus that wouldn't, uh, where they sort of just wrote checks and mailed them to Chinese households. That would actually be a good thing both probably for China and for the world economy. Uh, You know, Chinese households don't consume all that much uh, given their income. And if they were spending more, that would help Europe and, and the U.S., who would like to sell more things to Chinese consumers. What China's government is probably going to do instead is channel a bunch of new loans to its big businesses, much of which will just be used to kind of roll over unsustainable debts. Uh, and then it may also try to uh, juice its, its property market again, which is not something that, that it really needs to do, given bubble concerns in, in that sector. So it's, it doesn't have to be the case that the stimulus is going to be bad over the long run, uh, but in practice it is.
1: Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thank you, Jason. there's one thing that reliably comes up in the course of reporting economist stories it's data numbers so i've been asking our journalists to share some of the numbers they've come across this time it's Vendelin von bredo our european business and finance correspondent Vendelin, what number have you got
2: the number three
1: three what what's that
2: well, that's the number of pigs per person in Denmark. There are 14 million pigs in Denmark, but only 6 million Danes. So it's in some ways an over-pig country.
1: <laughs> um, so for every Dane, three pigs. Okay, but why is this, why is this number important to us?
2: Well, because Denmark is going to great lengths to protect its its domestic pigs, and it um, recently started to build a five-foot fence on the German-Danish border that, that's going to be uh, 70 kilometers long. Which is um, causing some concern by by locals in Germany.
1: Well, yes, because because Europe is is borderless. Uh, why why is this 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 fence going up?
2: It's basically a measure to protect Danish farmers against African swine fever, which is a terrible disease for domestic pigs and it's a deadly fever that kills nearly all of, of the pigs it infects. It's, it is no threat to humans, but it's carried by wild boar. So the fence is being built to keep out the wild boar.
1: Right. Right. The Danes are worried about infectious immigrant pigs.
2: That's right. Um, the immigrant pigs they are particularly worried about are pigs from Eastern Europe and Belgium, because that's where outbreaks of African swine fever have been reported.
1: I, I expect for, for Denmark, since it's got so many of them, this is not a um, small bore problem.
2: No, absolutely not. It's a pig problem. <laughs> it's a big problem um, because it could threaten as many as thirty thousand jobs and four billion euros in pork export. It's vital to the to the Danish economy, and this explains why they are being so overly cautious.
1: Okay, I think I follow so far. Is 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 everyone on board with separating the boars from the pigs?
2: There's controversy uh, from various sides. One is that local Germans uh, are offended by the fence partly for aesthetic reasons, but partly because they feel it violates the ethos of a borderless Europe. Then there's also the boss of the WWF in Denmark says it's it's actually, it's not going to be effective because only proper rules on biosecurity will help. And he he doesn't think the fence will keep out the wild boar. There are others, um, such as the editor of Pig Progress, uh, a gentleman called Vincent Terbeck.
1: Pig Progress, what, what's
2: that? <laughs> it's a trade magazine. It's yeah. It's, it's, it's it's actually it's it's surprisingly interesting <laughs>
1: All right. And so what does the editor of this uh, poor sign publication think?
2: He thinks they are being extremely cautious, but it um, but it could be helpful. He thinks it's it is a deterrent actually
1: um so on balance, then do you think this plan will work?
2: I'm not sure. I mean, it is of some help because it'll deter certainly some wild boar from crossing the border but there are two problems with it one is that wild boar can swim and you know there are rivers and ponds and they will can very easily and quite quickly swim through them and then if only one infected wild boar is reported in denmark then America, China and Japan will stop the imports of Danish pork instantly, even if that wild boar hasn't infected any domestic pigs. So the consequences could be quite drastic. So in all, I think, you know, it might be of help, but it's certainly not an absolute guarantee against the outbreak of African swine fever. And I think it's got to do with the government wanting to be seen as doing something to protect its farmers, to help them, and to make them less anxious about African swine fever.
1: Thanks for your time, Bendelin.
2: Pleasure, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. See you back here tomorrow.